Good heavens! A podcast about the universe with Wayne and Dan. Good heavens, Wayne! It's another podcast. How are you today? Well, hi, Dan. Well, let's let's give it a whirl. <laughs> I think the other one went well. I don't. Uh, we we got a little crazy on the moon stuff, but uh, now we're gonna we're gonna switch orbs. We're gonna go out a little further into the solar system and talk about the king of the planets. Jupiter, Jupiter, which yes. is the Roman name for Zeus, the Greek god of Olympus, and uh, just some fascinating medieval lore, some wonderful stuff about uh, the Juno probe that that made it out there last summer, and uh, all kinds of things that Jupiter has influenced in our culture, um, and how it all points to the glory of God in Christ. Right. So. Um, I wanted to start off by talking about um, – I love going back to the medieval time um, – what Jupiter was to somebody in the 12th, 13th, 14th century. Um, back before Kepler, which would have been 1600s, um, there, the astronomy and astrology was the same thing. Mm. Auster logos, which means star, star logic or star order. And then when Kepler came along and discovered his planetary motions, we kind of moved from astrology to astronomos, which mm-hmm. means star law. And the law aspect, as we talked about last time, really took over the mathematical representations of the universe. But Kepler, and we'll talk about this later, but Kepler did astrology. He predicted he, – because he could predict where the planets would be, um, he would predict for kings – uh, he would do a, a star charts, right? He would right, do yeah. birth charts, and he did his own astrology. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, he did it mostly because it was required of him. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It was a way to earn money, right? Yeah. But uh, in in uh, in medieval times, Jupiter was considered to to uh, influence a, a kingly, solemn, joyful, gift giving spirit. Mm-hmm. So if you've ever read uh, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, have you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, my uh, professor in grad school, uh, Michael Ward, wrote a book called Planet Narnia. Mm. And it's a thesis that he, he suggests that Lewis has used the seven planets of medieval cosmology and all their influences as background imagery in the seven chronicles. So mm. each of the chronicles represents one of the seven planets of medieval cosmology, the sun and the moon being considered planets back then. But Jupiter was Lewis's favorite planet, and it, it, he, he, he really liked Jupiter. He felt like he was the spitting image of the medieval Jupiter. Now, Lewis didn't believe in astrology, but what Lewis did was took all that medieval mythology that surrounded the planetary influences, and he used those uh, to point to Aslan, which Aslan ultimately points to Christ. So there's a layering there. There's mm-hmm. the planet influence. Mm-hmm. There's Aslan, the character of Aslan, and then there's Jesus underlying all of it. And so he kind of baptized the medieval imagination. But one of the things, one of the aspects of Jupiter in the medieval mindset was its kingly influence, it, its benevolence, its uh, magnificence, its solemnity. It was, it's joyful and gift-giving. And this is why uh, Santa Claus appears. This is what Dr. Ward says, that Santa mm-hmm. Claus appears in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as a representation of the Jovian spirit. You've heard mm. the phrase, by Jove, by right? By Jove. By Jove. Mm. And it was a Shakespearean way of kind of saying instead of you couldn't talk about God's name on the stage. And so they would refer to these mythical deities <laughs> to, to get away with that. And everybody knew what they were talking about. Uh. So when you said by Jove, you say, you know, uh, by God, you know, that, that that's what's, what's happening there. Mm. So – um, in Narnia, of course, you have the four kings, the four children that walk into the wardrobe. They, mm-hmm. have, they, they encounter Narnia and, and they have a wonderful adventure. But it all kind of happens to them. 
uh, in the beginning of Lewis's book, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first sentence talks about this is what happened to four children um, who were sent away from London Mm -hmm. because of the air raids. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting is that today's date, the day that we're recording this is September 1st. And on September 1st, 1939, the U.K. initiated Operation Pied Piper. Mm-hmm. And what that was was a movement of several, I think, several million uh, civilians into the countryside away from the London and the larger cities to avoid casualties because they knew the inevitability of, of Hitler bombing London. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the air raids, the, the, literally that story was birthed uh, in part uh, because of that's what the air raids were. And Lewis himself at the kilns uh, actually had received uh, four young schoolgirls at his house on the 1st or the 2nd of September of 1939 as part of Operation Pied Piper. Hmm. So when you see the description of Lewis uh, or the description of the professor welcoming the four Pevensey children, uh, it's kind of autobiographical in a sense. The, the four children arrive at this weird professor's house. I've always thought it, it was yeah. kind of uh, seemed uh, like that. Yeah. yeah, there's actually a letter that Lewis <laughs> writes to his brother, Warney, in, on September 2nd, dated September 2nd, 1939. Uh, the, the four schoolgirls have arrived, and they're delighted with the surroundings. And so it's, it's very much – I think there's a tie in there. But, but that's part of the mystique of Jupiter. For, so for Lewis, Jupiter was a gift giver. So you got gifts. Gifts happened to you. Things, things were given to you. You, know, you didn't deserve them, but, but the children in, in Narnia don't even know what's about to happen to them. But you see that Aslan draws them in. Aslan calls them. And and then there's this Jovian gift-giving kingly influence going on as well, but it all points to Jesus. So we're not talking about an astrological influence like the planet itself is doing anything. Mm. We're talking about the planet as a created thing that Jesus has made. Mm-hmm. And through that creation, his shine, his invisible attributes, like Romans one twenty says. Mm-hmm. So you think of all from, from from all the mythology in and around and the influence of Jupiter from time immemorial to now to modern spacecraft. Uh, the influence is still there. It still excites people. The planet is still amazing, and especially up close, it's just phenomenal. But that influence, I think, still pervades us. We still get excited about it. You read, you go back and you watch the Juno homepage, and we'll talk about this. The the team members are so excited mm. about building. They, it launched August 11th, I think it was the 11th, in, in the 2011. They launched it, and f- almost five years later, the, the ship took five years, the, the craft took five years to get out to the planet. Mm-hmm. So last summer... They compiled the data, and uh, they they showed an amazing amount of things. And you have some things that you want to share in regards to, to the Juno spacecraft, which I think really, when we talk about it, hopefully people will see how it ties in to the wonder that, that Lewis had with the planets, and, and hopefully ultimately how, how all of that wonder that we have about the universe is really Jesus drawing us to himself through what he has created. Right. I've always been fascinated by Jupiter. I think uh, Lewis and I would get along because it's my favorite planet, I think, too. That's how you got interested in well, astronomy, right? I've, I've really studied planetary science a lot, and uh, I've written some articles about the origin of the formation of planets and things, and the extrasolar planets. and So um, I'm very interested in Jupiter, but Jupiter uh, is... Uh, much, much larger and more massive than all the other planets in our solar system. So our Earth is the third uh, planet from the sun, of course, and then there's Mars and then Jupiter. Jupiter is about 11 times the Earth's diameter, and it is so massive that you could take the mass of all the other planets together 
and Jupiter would be more than double that. So that fits in what we were talking about last time about weightiness, yeah. that the mass of Jupiter is a hulk. It's a, right. it's a planetary monster. It's, it's ginormous. It's massive. Right. It and, is glorious, truly glorious in a biblical sense. And what modern planetary scientists are finding is that they, they look at many scenarios of what if Jupiter moved? What would happen? What, how would it affect the other planets? Right. Jupiter affects the motion of just about everything in the solar system. In fact, Jupiter is big enough and massive enough that it makes the sun wobble all by itself. <laughs> I didn't know that. It, it does. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, the sun actually moves so that this, the center of the solar system is not the center of the sun. It's a point close to the surface of the sun. Right. So the, sun's the sun little... is wobbling around that, that point. I say, sun, why are you so wobbly today? Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. Brother Jupiter out there, there making there's, his... There's a by Jove for you. Yeah, by Jove, I didn't yeah. know. <laughs> Good heavens, I didn't know the planet could do that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Fantastic. So, so uh, Juno has been out at Jupiter for uh, a little over a year now. Uh, and uh, one of the interesting things is uh, there's a... There's a really neat picture. Uh, one of the things people don't know is Jupiter has a ring around it. It's a very faint dust ring, and it's um, fairly close to the planet. So what they did was uh, they had to get Juno. Um, they wanted to get Juno as close to Jupiter's clouds as possible. And you can see really neat pictures if you go to the NASA website. Uh, and, Dan, when you look at these close-up pictures of the clouds of Jupiter, it looks like a painting. It reminds me of a, a famous paintings. Well, I'll tell you, the Wayne, on that note, I saw, it wasn't that long ago, um, I think it was some, NASA, I think NASA did this, but there was a website that was dedicated, and it may be done on the Juno mission page, I don't know, um, but somebody, a citizen scientist or some creative artist, took, I think it was the northern, the North Pole of Jupiter, the images uh, they were dark blues and white, swirly things, mm -hmm. just giant hurricanes in the northern hemisphere of Jupiter. And she took them and superimposed, literally superimposed Jupiter's clouds onto Van Gogh's oh, yeah. starry night. Right. And if you were not an, a Van Gogh connoisseur <laughs> and you looked at that, you would think, oh, that's Van Gogh's starry night. It's, yeah. right. But it, but it's it's Jupiter's cloud tops. Yeah, I heard about that. You it. know, and, and yeah. it, it reminds me of the fact that uh, uh, Vincent Van Gogh himself, do you know the story behind how he painted Starry Night? Just get off, not to get too far off the subject here, but um, in 1889, he was in an institution, a uh, mental institution, uh, self-imposed, I believe, for depression and suicidal thoughts and things. And he mm. wanted to be in a safe place, but he loved to paint in in the institution. And in uh, 1889, he painted Starry Night in the institution. Mm. In St. Remy's, I believe, is the name of the place. Um, and he said he wrote, he, this is what he wrote to his brother. Um, Very often fits of depression come over me. And besides, the more my health come back to normal, the more my brain can reason in cold blood, the more foolish it seems to me. And a thing against all reason to be doing this painting, which costs us so much and brings in nothing, not even the net cost. Then I feel very unhappy. And the trouble is that at my age, it's damnably difficult to begin anything else. Mm -hmm. That was his sentiments on after painting Starry Night. Mm -hmm. So he painted it in poverty. 
in a in an institution, and he he spent more on it than it did. He didn't even get any returns on it. The thing now hangs mm-hmm. in the Metropolitan Museum of Modern Art in New York, and it's worth. I mean, nobody knows how much it's worth. A fortune, right? But yeah. what's interesting, and I thought of this metaphor. Imagine walking into the museum, taking the Van Gogh, taking Starry Night off the shelf, and walking out mm-hmm. of the museum, and the curator is like, "Hey, where are you going with that? Oh, it's just paint." Right? It's right. just paint. Right. And so when we're talking about the universe from a scientific perspective, that's kind of what the attitude is. It's just, it's just gas. It's just stuff. Right. But, but it's not. We, right. we intuitively know as there is more to Starry Night, there's more to Jupiter. And it's an artist's creation. You look at those cloud covers and mm-hmm. you're like, yeah, Sistine mm-hmm. Chapel, Vincent Van Gogh, yeah. uh, Leonardo da Vinci. I thought I saw images of The Last Supper. I mean, it, people were moved. It was amazing to see how people were moved by the artistic aspects mm-hmm. of Juno's close up uh, photography. So, anyway. Right. Some more about Juno. Uh, Juno has to go into a very high radiation environment to get close to Jupiter. Yeah, there's Jupiter you, surrounded you, by radiation. You don't want to go on a space. Spaceship trip to Jupiter because it would be extremely so dangerous. There. Fifty sunblock wouldn't work. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so there was a NASA video about this, and it says that uh, the you know, the the radiation unit is something called the RAD, and here on Earth we are exposed to about one third of a RAD. So that that's insignificant, really. Well. The Juno spacecraft is exposed to something like 20 million rads. Oh, goodness gracious. And when they did the Galileo space mission uh, to Jupiter, the computers kept being reset because of the... The the, massive amount of radiation. The radiation. So they had to take special uh, measures to protect it and harden it against radiation and and static electricity probably and everything like that. So uh, one of the things they did to get around the danger of that was to fly very close to Jupiter because there is a zone very close to the clouds where the uh, there's less radiation because the magnetic field doesn't have the strong of an effect for a certain distance. So it flew in between the radiation and the planet itself. Right, so they had to thread the needle to fly very close to the, the Jupiter's clouds. And That's not, amazing. And not hit Jupiter and not, you know, crash. And one of the things they did when they were flying close to Jupiter is they, they pointed the spacecraft out and they took a photograph of the ring of Jupiter looking out from the inside. Wow. And you, this is an incredible picture. It, it, you see this, and it just kind of a strange picture. And you, if you don't know what it is, it looks. Yeah, it, it needs some explanation. Kind of, it needs some explanation, but it's really neat. And NASA has this on their website. Uh, I was amazed at this. So we've really come a long way in being able to uh, uh, do these space missions and discover things. We have lots of facts and information about the solar system now. We have wonderful pictures. And I'm I'm just fascinated by the fact that um, God has created all of these different worlds, these different planets. And here we are on this nice little blue planet with plenty of water and it's got the environment we need. But Jupiter is so different. It's so much bigger. You almost wonder if, if uh, I think it was Neil deGrasse Tyson I heard talking about this, you know, in the, in the Pluto controversy. Is mm. Pluto a planet? Well, Earth and Jupiter are so radically different. Mm-hmm. I mean, about the only thing they have in common is they're round, or mostly. 
Um, um, but but should we even is Jupiter something else entirely in in terms of Earth? Because Earth not only is a small little thing, it it, it has life on it, and Jupiter is just massive, eleven times more massive than the than the Earth. Should we should we call Jupiter something else? You know, I've I've heard I don't know if you've heard this. I've heard people talk about Jupiter as being a, a protostar or a kind of what people might imagine had the right amount of gravity and gaseous compression come together, we might have had a little brown dwarf or something like that. Um, I've heard much about that. Well, in some ways, there's not all that much difference between the different objects. So, for example, if if a, if a planet is around 12 Jupiter masses, it's considered a planet. But if it gets around the range of about 14, they start calling it a brown dwarf star. It, the mass of Jupiter isn't really enough for it to be a star just needs a little bit more mass. And it doesn't can... have enough to get that nuclear furnace going. Got it. Got but, it. But uh, it's kind of an arbitrary division. Where, but there's a size range around 13 to 14 Jupiter masses where they start calling it a brown dwarf. Star. And they're finding a lot of these uh, Jupiter mass planets uh, with the Kepler satellite hunter as well, right? When they're then when they look at extrasolar yes. planets, the one thing that keeps coming up a lot are that more Jupiter planets, Jupiter-like planets are closer to the sun than our Jupiter is. It's almost like right. an inversion right. of our solar system. We're it's, finding out that we're more unique than we thought we were. Yeah, it's amazing because uh, the, many of these extrasolar planets are called hot Jupiters because they're very similar to our Jupiter, but uh, they're up close to the, the star, like closer than Mercury is in our solar wow. system. Wow, so that would be... And it's it's so hot in that region, they couldn't possibly form there by just gas compression and gas cooling. Yeah. So they came up with theories about the planets migrating in, so they would form at a larger distance and then migrate in. And I'm, I'm kind of skeptical about the idea, but that's the... That's the uh, the going theory for explaining extrasolar planets. But these systems are different from ours, right? Yeah. So here's the question. The, the, the significant thing is, why is ours so different? Jupiter is in kind of the middle of the solar system, mm -hmm. and it's the biggest one. So it's kind of the the anchor for the other planets. It really is. It works with the dynamics. Yeah. And yeah. it's just in the right place to benefit us because there's a lot of comets and small objects that could come into the inner solar system and maybe uh, hit Earth yeah. and make an impact on Earth. But Jupiter has is very effective in capturing and deflecting those objects. Yeah, its mass draws uh, draws the solar draws the uh, the cosmic detritus toward itself. 1994, you remember, uh Shoemaker-Levy right. comet, uh the Hubble Space Telescope, I think it was Hubble, um detected or at least mm -hmm. with Hubble we could see mm -hmm. the impact of this comet that broke up and slammed into the surface of Jupiter. It was it was a monumental event and uh the, it was, you know, we, I talked about earlier about Jupiter being uh, a gift given. The, the spirit of Jupiter is is one of gift giving. Mm. And Shoemaker-Levy, as they were describing their find, it was very serendipitous to them. I mean, it was like, wow, we found this comet. We were looking for comets. We found this really odd-shaped comet. And, and we were fortunate, lucky, as they say, to to be able to capture this. But it really, that that discovery of the Shoemaker-Levy 9 comet that broke apart really opened our eyes to how Jupiter does sweep out like a defense mm. uh, to us, uh, that, that, it, that Earth can, we're sheltered uh, by, by that, the, the gas giant being out there doing its protecting things as well as uh, Neptune and uh, uh, Uranus and Neptune. But it's interesting because 
C.S. Lewis thought, uh, you know, the great red spot, that uh, cyclonic storm that's uh, uh, one. It's, it's shrinking now, I heard. Have you heard that? Yes. It's, it's it, actually gone down inside. At, at one point, it was like almost two Earths could fit inside it. Now yes. it's, it's like an Earth and a half or something like that. It's, it, it's gotten it's, smaller. It is smaller than it used to be. And in fact, people don't realize the spot uh, sort of moves around the equator of Jupiter. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. sliding your belt buckle around yeah. your waist. And didn't uh, Juno just took a picture, the mm-hmm. most detailed picture of the spot that we've had mm-hmm. up until now. And it was C.S. Lewis. And he was his favorite planet. C.S. Lewis, I don't think, I think in 1960, he would have seen this. He would have known the spot. Obviously, he did. Uh, he thought the spot being the king of the planets, and this is how Lewis's imagination goes. Now, I'm not saying that this is what God intended, but this is certainly something that reminded Lewis of Jesus. And I think it's very reasonable to do this. Without saying this is what God intended the planet to be, we can certainly say this is what it reminds me of. So you have this king of the planets who is our shield and defender mm. who has a wound in mm-hmm. his side, the great red mm-hmm. spot, like mm-hmm. a wounded king, right? right? And then Hubble has taken fantastic pictures, and now Juno is too, of of the auroras mm. on Jupiter. They have auroras like we do, only mm-hmm. several, many times larger, much bigger, and much yeah. bigger. Yeah. But they're 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 glorious. It's mm-hmm. it's like it's like a crown. Uh, mm-hmm. So so this truly is in, in so many ways. There's there's only one way to describe it in terms of a metaphor that we can comprehend, and that's a king. The magnanimity, the the, the hugeness, like Solomon, like the, mm-hmm. the greatest king who ever lived. Right. Uh, that's the only way that we can even begin to conceptualize what this planet does. Literally, I mean, if 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 we weren't Christians, we'd literally be talking about the planet as though it were doing things for us. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think a lot of people kind of do get into that astrology because they recognize the universe has a personality to it an artist a king a defender we can only describe these i know it's very anthropomorphic but but we can only it seems like uh we can only talk about the universe as though it were personal you know without saying that jupiter's alive and it's some living thing but that it reflects the personality of its creator, I think. I mean, it was designed to. The whole heavens and the earth are filled with God's glory. So we see right. aspects so, of, of Christ's invisible attributes through the planet. So I, I look at it like, okay, here's, here's our earth. We're familiar with earth. But now Jupiter is so much larger. So God created both. So the way earth is, is not an accident. No. It's deliberate. And the, even the, you know, like our sun, the arrangement of our solar system with Jupiter out there, and it's right, just the right distance. So it can deflect these small objects and prevent yeah. impacts on earth. Yeah. And uh, so there, there are hints of intelligent design in this, I think. Yeah, more than hints. I would say yeah. they're, they're pretty big clues. So... And it points to God's greatness. So Jupiter has always been a favorite of mine because it reminds me of God's greatness. Yeah. He's bigger than than uh, everything we can see and touch on the earth. He has made other worlds of other kinds, different worlds of different kinds. Some of these worlds and moons are, are, are ice. Some of them are gas. Right. Some of them are, are rocky, and some of them are just plain weird, like Pluto, <laughs> <Yeah>. for example. <laughs> Beauty and weird and beautiful at the yeah. same time. And that's, I think, you know, the Van Gogh thing that I read just a few minutes ago, uh, you know, there was a sorrow in Van Gogh's art. I mean, he ended up taking his own life, tragically, not long after that. But, um, you know, it does remind you of a, that Jesus, as glorious and powerful and omniscient as he is, came down and was known and prophesied to be a man of sorrows. Mm. And then in Gethsemane, he's he's sorrowful to the point of death. And so 
it's interesting to me that that a Van Gogh is that someone would recognize Jupiter as having Van Gogh-like qualities. But mm-hmm. I think that points to the character, the tempestuous, stormy, and mysterious nature. I mean, we're still we we don't as Christians we often become so familiar with God that we lose. The perspective of his mystery and his majesty. For for as much as we know about that planet, we're looking at it now and it's going, my goodness, what is going on there? Right. And we're barely even beginning to scratch the surface of it. The thing that gave me chills was the original Juno mission when it was approaching and it was it was almost going to get there in last July. They had a promotional video that just with this orchestral music and the just Jupiter's a monster and we don't know anything about it and really you know we're just scratching the surface of it. Um, it reminded you, it reminds me of, you know, the disciples' amazement with Jesus when he's commanding the wind and the wave. Who is this that commands the wind and the wave? And mm-hmm. imagine, I mean, mm-hmm. to me, now you back it out, they didn't have any clue about Jupiter like we do. Mm-hmm. And who is this that commands something like the the winds and the waves on Jupiter, whatever right. those are, right. you know, yeah. that, that, right. that that is actively moving by Christ's commands. Now, Speaking of metaphors, the director of the Juno Project, uh, Dr. Scott Bolton, I think he's a, a doctor, he's a passionate guy. He tells, tells the story in the Journey video on the Juno website. Um, oh, by the way, I couldn't – I've got to mention this before I forget it. The Juno spacecraft satellite icon that they have on the Juno mission page mm-hmm. looks like Michael Jordan slam dunking a basketball. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I didn't notice yeah, that. Yeah, the Air Jordan symbol uh, and the Jupiter symbol look exactly the same. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. But uh, uh, last summer when Scott Bolton was announcing that they had a public uh, – they had a, a press conference about Jupiter, uh, Juno arrival, Juno's arrival, um, Juno as, – as the spacecraft was getting closer to the planet – for the first time in the history of our study of this planet, uh, Juno took a series of photographs of the moons. And the guys in Juno layered these photos together in a, a – like still photos in a video. So we could now – you can see – you can go on YouTube. It's, you can see it everywhere, the Juno uh, pictures of the Jovian moons going around Jupiter. Mm-hmm. We can mm-hmm. see that for the first time in history. And Scott Bolton said this. He says, this is what it's about. This is what Jupiter and its moons look like, referring to the motion of the moons around the planet. This is what our solar system looks like if you were to move out. It's what galaxies look like. It's what the atoms look like. It's harmony at every scale. Mm -hmm. This is the king of our solar system and its disciples going around it. <laughs> and he's and Bolton saying this is this is this is nature. This is the universe. Mm. The, the the king with the disciples going around it. I'm like That's and he's great. not trying to be yeah. you know, he's not trying to be evangelical or anything. At least I don't think he is. Maybe he is. I don't know. But but that that's it. I mean, that was a to me that was a fantastic quote. But Scott, yeah. in the video, uh, Bolton goes in to describe how when he was a kid, he just was fascinated by the universe. And he said, "I wanted to go to Jupiter. I wanted to reach out to it." And then he then he says, well, here I am, the director of this project, and I'm reaching out. Mm-hmm. But he says he, it was just luck. And to me, I'm like, you know, I mean, that's the difference in our worldviews, right? Again, that, that you have this calling in childhood, and then it, and then it, it comes to fruition mm-hmm. as an adult, and you're just striking it up to, to luck. I mean, that's the tra- – I think – it's. I know it's exciting for them, but I think. I think it's. It, to me, it's. It's far more than luck. That's what you were created to do. That's what God called you to do, and you don't recognize the voice. But, you know, that's the. That's the thing. If he, I, if he believes it was just luck, he's missing something. Yeah, he's missing out. 
And and I, I wonder half of these scientists who study these things in such great detail go, you know, at some point when they're alone, they just, you know, this has got to be more than the math. Mm-hmm. It's got to be more than the science. What is it? It's not E equals MC squared that's calling me, calling me up there. I mean, NASA and the ESA, the European Space Agency, spend billions of dollars uh, every year. I know it's a small part of government budget, but they spend all this money to explore the universe. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was watching a video last year uh, from a UC Santa Barbara astrophysicist, Sandra Faber, who's pretty well known. She gave a great lecture on what she thought of the universe. But at the end of it, she said, you know, I've studied the universe, um, but I'm not quite sure what it all means. And if Mm -hmm. I can't find meaning in the universe, how can I find it for our species? Mm -hmm. And this is from a lifelong astrophysicist saying this. And I wonder how many that are not Christians who study the universe to this degree just really deal with and address that longing that mathematics and their discipline don't address, mm-hmm. that don't fundamentally get down to it. If you if you got the theory of everything, if you got that one-inch equation, it's still not the ultimately – that's still not going to satisfy that something else, that, that, that tug, that call, that awe and wonder and joy and glory that comes out of that. There's just no way to articulate that. And – Science has kind of taken over as the ultimate meaning, but even people in that discipline, I would say that though it's very satisfying, I'm sure, for a lot of people, there's still that science can't deal with the wonder. I mean, it can say it's wonderful. They can say it's awe-inspiring, but there's no equation for awe or wonder, you know, that, that, that stirring of the soul that Jupiter does. I mean, you just look at the pictures, Jupiter. You go online to the Juno mission, and it stirs you. And you don't have to know math to go, right? <gasps> whoa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you had some other interesting stuff about. Um, um, so I, I was I like to think about a, a particular verse in the Old Testament. Okay. Uh, when I think about planets and the um, Jupiter, of course, is, is very different from Earth. It's not a habitable planet because it's a gas, gas giant. But um, – <clears throat> In, in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18 in the Old Testament, uh, it says, For this is what the Lord says, He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. That's awesome. So, clearly, earth is designed for uh, habitation um, uh, by us. And uh, it's not an accident. It's uh, And God claims responsibility for it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, we have found now uh, uh, something like 3,000 possible extrasolar planets, and they're in the process of uh, verifying those. Uh but they're all different from our you, That's an interesting point. You hear reported by the time CNN or Time Magazine or some popular magazine or book gets a hold of it, you hear Earth-like planets mm-hmm. as a phrase. Yes. But th- that what they mean really is that in terms of size and location within its own orbit of the sun, it's similar to ours. But there's there's nothing Earth-like in reality that we can really say – 
except because there's, with Kepler so far away, it's just detecting light blips. It's not actually mm-hmm. looking at the surface of these planets or anything like that. So the idea that it's, it's somewhat misleading to say Earth-like planets because that you've got the temperature of the sun. You have so many other variables that go into play. Yeah, some of these are tidal-locked yeah. planets, you know. Many of them are, yes. uh, the mass, Some of the mass, they say Earth-like, but some of them are like one to two times the mass of the Earth. Um, yeah, that's really all they really mean. Yeah. By the, is the, it's with about uh, two Earth masses or less or yeah. three Earth masses. So they're very it's, general. Some of, them, some of them they call super-Earths yeah. because there may be two or three Earth masses. Right. So what they're looking for is a habitable planet. And so they look at what, how do you define what would be the habitable zone. And the habitable zone depends on the star. Many of these stars for the extrasolar planets are very dim stars. Colder. They're, they're dwarf Red. stars mm-hmm. because the dwarf ones are easy, more easily uh, more easily wobbled, if you will, mm-hmm. by the by the planets. Yeah, more it's, perturbed by it's the... It's easier to detect them and study them. And, and, and the transit measurements are where uh, a, a planet passes in front of the star or be, be, on, our, on our line of sight to the star... It, it crosses our line of sight. It makes so a little dip. It makes the, the the light of the star dip, and they can learn things about the planet and the star uh, from that from that uh, light change. Mm-hmm. And and that's what the Kepler spacecraft is doing, uh, the Kepler telescope. Um, What's interesting, one star. I know this is kind of off the Jupiter topic, <clears throat> but. Uh, there's this star they discovered a couple of years ago called Tabby's Star. It's named Ooh. after the lady that discovered it or was responsible primarily for the discovery of it. Um, if you think of uh, the planets as a smooth dip on a light curve, uh, what they found transiting across Tabby's Star is inexplicable. To this day, they don't know what exactly is passing in front of this star. They don't, they, they've tried all kinds of theories, even like Death Star-like things, like Dyson spheres, these alien megastructures they've even postulated. So um, isn't it because the, it was a huge change in the it was, light? It was like, okay, so, so if you were to see Jupiter passing in front of our sun, decreases our sun's light about, you know, a point of a percent or something like that, something yeah. very small. Right. Uh, and so Tabby's star dims like 20%. Mm-hmm. Which is which is just crazy enormous. What is passing in front of them? They thought asteroids. Maybe uh, Tabby Star is throwing off its surface. I mean, I don't know. I'm not scientifically endowed enough to know what could possibly be an explanation. But astrophysicists and planetary hunters, they're just dumbfounded. Uh, you can look up Tabby Star and you can see all the mystery and all the explanations as to what's going on. But they've they don't know. You know, they don't right. know. So we're just like we're just touching the surface. Kepler, like you said, has only found, I say only, but 3,000 exoplanets, something like that. Mm-hmm. And every one of them is turning up to be slightly different. I mean, they're making the charts and everything from this. Um, but uh, getting back to Jupiter, uh, it, it really is when we say when I say it influences us, it influenced you to get into planetary astronomy. Mm-hmm. But you and I wouldn't say that the planet itself was doing this. It was no. God, his invisible attributes, his glory. It was Jesus, you know, hey, Wayne, you know, here. It was through what he has created that he awakened you and drew you. And, I mean, that's what creation is. It's, it, it, it is an attestation of God's glory through what he has made. So the real influence is coming from God because Romans says that he shows us yes. these things mm-hmm. through what he has made. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about influence from a biblical perspective, we're talking not astrology. We're talking about God's spirit moving the hearts of people to understand that the world was created by him. 
and that's that's right. And it's the kind of association that people make. Yeah. So uh, we talk about Jupiter as the king of the planets. So um, it, it's a connection to God being over everything and bigger than everything and more power, all powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, right. So and and it gets it gets brings me back to our not just our planet being designed for us, but our really our solar system is arranged to be stable. Not all s- planetary systems are stable. Yeah. And and it's a, it's a safe neighborhood, I like mm-hmm. to say. Yeah. God put us in a safe neighborhood in our yeah. solar system. And we're finding the more the more the Planet Hunter telescope finds planets, the more we're seeing how unique ours is because we're seeing almost an antithesis of what of what ours is. And the other aspect of, I think, what, what you have with <clears throat> people creating, uh, people equating Jupiter's cloud cover with art immediately, mm-hmm. I think, immediately says there's more to this planet than science mm-hmm. because people are making artistic connections. And this is, this is part and parcel of what God is doing through creation. Look, I'm an artist. I, I'm a mathematician. I'm, I'm, I've got his wisdom and creativity are beyond comprehension. Um, you know, the end of Job. God gives Job a very lengthy discourse about, you know, the rhetorical questions. Where were you mm-hmm. when I created the universe, basically? Right. Um, and it's interesting in Job's trials, when Job is going through difficulty uh, and all the evil befalls him, how does God answer Job through a discourse on creation? Mm-hmm. So I think uh, looking at the universe, to me, is a good way, it's a healthy way for believers to maybe reorient the question of what we tend to call theodicy, the problem mm-hmm. of evil, where is God mm-hmm. in this or that or this or that? And these are these are perennial questions that we're always asking. But but when we study the universe, uh, it's it, we're so captivated by its magnificence that it seems like, and the mysteries even, um, that it seems like it pales in comparison. Well, look, look what the solar eclipse did, even for a day. It took our minds off of politics. It took our minds off of hating each other. Mm-hmm. It united our culture, even if it was temporary. Uh, but it had it had the facility it, it facilitated a unity that we hadn't seen in our country in a while, mm-hmm. and that's just the tip of the iceberg. I think when you talk about the glory of God, one of the team members on Juno in the video. This is a great video. You should. It's like five minutes. You go on the Juno website. It's called the Journey, I think. And uh, the one of the team engineers said, you know, when we come to work, we roll up our sleeves, we check our egos at the door and do what it is that we have to do, do what it is that needs to get done. And I thought, you know, the Juno mission, that, that little statement right there, to me, though this guy's talking about science and all this stuff, I think it's a wonderful statement for, for the church. You know, we, uh, we roll up our sleeves, check our egos at the door, and hopefully we, we, we do what needs to be done, and no matter how big or small. Right. Um, and when people see that unity, when people are unified, I mean, that's what Jesus says in John, um, people will know us by... Our love for one another, uh, being unified, being mm-hmm. one with Christ, mm-hmm. and that, that for for a very brief time on the twenty first of August, I think our culture experienced a taste, a foretaste of of how we can be unified under the glory of God. But uh, you know, this is not heaven, and that's not going to be perfect. But we can at least strive to do that. And I think the universe, the cosmos, is one way that we can we can begin that dialogue with people again and talk about the wonders of the universe. Look at how it brought people together. And uh, I hope it it can continue to do that through the discussions that we have. 
Yes, and uh, Dan, I've heard uh, stories of people who work at NASA uh, and the different perspectives that they have, and, and that's another example of how they're they're brought together by the the mission. Yeah, and they really accomplish some wonderful things at NASA. Yes, they do. Uh, it's amazing. I have a lot of admiration for them, and there are there are believers there and uh, non-believers there. Yeah, as far as whether they believe in God or not, but they work together and they get it done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, uh, it's always interesting to me the surprises that come along. You know, we science gets kind of used to certain ideas, and then it's it's easy to kind of get comfortable with those ideas when you don't have more information. Right. And then something comes along that gives you a whole new level of information, and it changes your whole concept of certain yeah, things. I think so there are things like this about Jupiter. They're really fundamental questions and not answered still, even mm-hmm. though with all we know. You know. We don't know if there is a solid core in Jupiter. And that probably has a lot to do with the magnetic field and other things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there's there's layer, apparently a layer of ammonia in Jupiter that has not mixed with the other layers of gases. They just found this out with Juno, I heard that. Yes, yeah, and yeah. They, they have no idea why it would why it would not be mixed like that. So there's, Juno is going to find out things. There are going to be surprises. Yeah, and it's got a couple, uh, two, I think July of 2018 um, is when it ends, I suppose, uh, I think. I uh, don't recall the date, but next year. And, uh, yeah, it's... There's always surprises. We we uh, the God of the Bible is a God of surprises. Believers will be surprised as much as unbelievers probably about some of the things. Yeah, I, that's the that's the other thing too. I mean, as much as we we there's the the in-house debate among Christians in terms of the age of the Earth, and I mm-hmm. think that's taken a a polemical turn. We tend to divide lines over one another. We divide ourselves over one another on that question, and. Uh, um, I think it's unfortunate because there's a lot more that we don't know. There's a lot more that's out there that that that, that uh, we can focus on that that unites us rather than focusing on things that that divide us. And I think the heavens, well, whether it's an eclipse or the planet Jupiter or a, a terrible hurricane, that the, the 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 forces of nature God uses to unite us, you know, and and get our attention um, to to show us what's truly important. And um, right, uh, I think without Without going into what exactly these natural events, you know, mean, um, I, I see, like I've seen on the news since the hurricane, that, that nothing but um, people coming together, people coming from all over to help. Um, you know, our, our food bank in, in Tarrant County in Fort Worth uh, was filled up with volunteers for the month of September um, just to help out with, with food relief for the hurricanes. And it's just it's just overwhelming. Uh, to see that, and I think there's we need to strive for that for that unity because that is truly, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God, but so do believers being unified. Uh, yes. That also that also glorifies God as well. Absolutely. And so I think the heavens can be a can be a catalyst for uh, bringing Christians together, and uh, if we speak intelligently about it with respect to the sciences, uh, where we agree, where we disagree, where it's wonderful, where it's not wonderful. Um, um, you know that's where we can we can make inroads, and I think you know something like Jupiter and Juno 
It's fascinating. It's just absolutely fascinating. For everything we don't, we, we know there's so much that we don't know. So much that we don't know. Especially, I'm 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 fascinated by the because Juno's going around the the northern and southern poles of the planets, yes. things we've never seen before. Yeah, yeah. So you you got to get you get a perspective that Juno's orbit is north and south pole. These are pictures that we've we've just we've just never seen before, and they're right. they're just beautiful. The, the south pole is amazing. It's so different from all the other pictures of Jupiter that they've ever had before. Uh, so yeah, we we have limitations, but we we can still discover uh, great things, and uh, uh, we should take an attitude that we can learn together. Um, I just want to close with this. Uh, we were talking about the influence of the planet. But from the time when Shoemaker-Levy discovered the comet to Scott Bolton's uh, leadership in getting the the uh, space probe out there, um, it's clear we haven't even scratched the surface, if you will. <laughs> we, we, we don't know, even know if Jupiter, what kind of surface, if there's any surface there. Um, and we've talked about the planet, how it influences us. But I think I think we can both agree that that through the planet Jupiter itself, um, from time immemorial until now, it does really resemble. There are, there have been so many gifts that have come from the study. It got you into science. Uh, it 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 got me connected with Dr. Ward and reading Planet Narnia and doing my thesis on this. Um, it's still giving gifts in a way, but it's not the planet that's doing this. Mm-hmm. It's Jesus through what He has created. He is the one who ascends on high, takes captivity captive, and gives gifts to men. Right. He is the father, of the, the father of lights who gives gifts to men with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. Mm. He's the gift giver. So mm. it's, not, it's not the planet. It's not the gas. It's not the science. These are all tools that I think uh, that point to the glory of God in, in Jesus. And so when I think of Jupiter... Um, and, you know, we can say this because Jupiter can remind you of something. We're not being dogmatic. What did, what did God intend for this planet to be? And I think there's a lot of room for uh, poetical interpretations in, ter- in terms of taking thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. We take mm. planets captive to the mm. obedience of Christ. You right? know? <laughs> yeah. It's not just thoughts, but everything in the universe. I mean, Colossians, you know, everything in the universe uh, if, if hangs really, together in Christ. If you really, really want to, you can look at it as just gas. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think there's there's more to it. Much there? more to it. Because if it was just gas, we could just go stare at oxygen tanks for a while and be impressed uh, with it. Right. You know, yeah. and put some nitrogen over here and some oxygen over here and go, wow, look at the look at the gas tanks anyway you know uh but anyway uh that's gonna do it for another episode of good heavens and uh, we hope you have enjoyed it and uh we thank you for spending your afternoon or evening with us on the podcast and we hope it was enlightening and we hope it is something that will get you interested more in uh in uh, the universe thanks wayne we'll see you next time thanks man